Hi, I'm Bryn Thompson. This is the Coburn Ventures podcast. It's for our clients, for investors, for our community of industry leaders, fellows, and friends. This is a group that loves the craft of investing, studies change, is dedicated to business analysis and leadership, and all that's behind the scenes of that work. I hope you enjoy it. Today, Pip and I discuss decision-making biases. These are pitfalls that happen in our psychology and impact the decisions we make often, or by definition, subconsciously. The job is to bring them to the conscious level and put them in their place, which is one of respect. We talk about decision-making biases as similar to tracking error. There will always be some amount of tracking error. So talk about a problem that we really have a hard time meeting on our own as individuals. I think awareness of investment biases is oftentimes something we learn best in action from one another and teaching each other in the moment. And the funny thing about biases is that we can read about them, understand them in theory, but still commit them over and over again, almost for me to the point of embarrassment about how poorly I'm able to catch myself. It's like children playing Simon Says, but not learning that key awareness and listening skill. But we learn from the behavior and language of those around us. So if we can all just get to the starting line together, admitting that we are humans and not only prone to fall into these traps, but it's a guarantee that we will, in our teams, we can start to weave a process and a team culture that hopes to minimize the errors. We go through a number of examples and tactics to work with um, and around these biases, and there's a lot more in our written piece. What works for you and your team will look different, but I hope this offers a few ideas to start. I hope you enjoy. Today, we are talking about vanquishing decision-making biases, although Pip, we have often commented, you can't ever really vanquish anything, but especially decision-making biases. This is all about us being human. (laughs) So um, I love this topic and we have a couple of um, different elements for you today. But to get started, Pip, can you tell us a story about um, meeting Daniel Kahneman, or actually not meeting Daniel Kahneman, and how this relates to um, the kind of why we now have permission, perhaps, as investors Uh, to talk about decision-making biases. Yeah, so part of my background was going to Wharton Business School with efficient markets and all that type of stuff, one of the two or three homes of efficient market series and all this stuff, and you can't make money in the stock market. So I went there in part to get all of the arguments in my brain about why you couldn't make money because I figured if I couldn't handle that, investing would be just the stupidest profession ever. So I went through all that. In 1996, I went to my first Dan Kahneman lecture or seminar, two or three day seminar at Harvard. And then uh, a a key point, so I became like this, like infatuated with his work and stuff. Mm -hmm. So I was in Stockholm in 2002 when he got his Nobel Prize as the first non-economist to ever win the award for the Nobel Prize in economics. And I actually, I was so starstruck that he and his wife got into the elevator with me. And I was like, I just happened to be there for business. And 
I didn't say hi to him. <laughs> and <laughs> all these years later, like people have, of you know, that doesn't sound like something like that I would do that I a, a little bit outgoing and all, but I was that starstruck. So I just, I think the work that he did laid so much groundwork for humanizing individuals as not machines, mm. that we have emotions, that there's things that get in our way in our daily life. And in the macho world or the young world of investing that, hey, there's this room for that we have weakness in quotes, weaknesses as humans and we're not efficient. And, you know, he sort of opened that up. And uh, that's all reflected in markets and marketplaces. Oh, yeah. And the, the timing of him getting that award was not coincidental. It was. Yes. That, I mean, the crash at 2000 and then uh, the Nobel Prize in uh, 2002. Yeah, because what kind of happened is no one, efficient markets can't explain markets going through the roof and then collapsing. NASDAQ dropped from 5,000 down to 1,100. Efficient markets cannot explain that. And so they needed another answer. And all of a sudden, Dan Kahneman, they turned to him and said, hey, this guy has some ideas, <laughs> and which he had been working on for about 30 years with his partner. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it's so interesting. So now we have the permission and also the ability to shine a light on these decision-making biases in a bigger way, you know, kind of post that work. And also it's just, it's, it's not okay to, um, to let these biases keep flowing through our work and our processes now that we have some of this a, you know, a broader base of knowledge, especially if you're paid as a money manager, you know, we know that we are humans making these decisions. So now we have a responsibility to understand decision-making biases and see what we can do. One, you typically, you know, as we go through some of these biases are actually some of the practical ways to start to um, wrestle with them. Even if you can handle, let's say, um, recency bias or something like that in your process, um, typically another one pops right up. So this is an ongoing uh, adventure. <laughs> um, I think it's a great one for teams to understand and for a meta look at process um, every once in a while to see where you know, new biases may be cropping up even if you've been handling others very well. So with that, Pip, let's go into some of the ways to, I love how you say this, like systematically decalcify um, our argumentative supports um, that the biases kind of live in. So let's go through some of those that that come up. You talk about routing around future defensiveness. Yeah, I think one of the reasons we're able to have these conversations and have for a long time is uh, so many of the people that are either listening to this or in our circle are so student-oriented and they understand the challenges of being an expert, that if you start with that student orientation, then you can examine these things and not be gripped by them. So if we can decouple in any way, shape or form that uh, the thought we put out there has to be perfect and that we have to defend it at all costs, then we can make some real um, progress really, really quickly, Brent, I think. So one of these kind of practical ideas is celebrate changing one's mind. So changing one's mind is not a problem. You know, we often act as it's um, something to suppress. 
but that's one thing on a team that if you can celebrate changing one's mind, it can go a long way. Can you say a little bit more about that, Pep? Yeah, I think uh, teamwork, having a great team means helping each other from going over the cliff. And so if the team is really strong and can be straight with each other, but not in a accusatory where just like a reminding way, if you get that level of teamwork, then changing one's mind is not a foible. It's, it's something to draw out. When do we need, what evidence do we need? So there's a whole bunch of ways to do it. When I say celebrate, I'm talking like, let's really celebrate this stuff. Let's have like an award. Let's send someone to Hawaii because they had the best change of their mind during the year. Not just, you know, oh, we're going to celebrate, like seriously celebrate these things or celebrate red flagging. Mm-hmm. Um, celebrate um, red flagging, off which is Red flagging is taking our best thinking towards demonstrating the antithesis. Like mm-hmm. really go for it. Uh, for example, uh, red flagging, celebrating it would be, we put out a piece a couple years ago, it would be having all the brilliance and insight and process towards finding the thesis threats that's going to blow up your idea without relying on a third party devil's advocate, for instance. So that's an idea of celebrating red flagging. Um, also in teamwork, just how do we break down that anyone ever owns an idea? Like, mm. oh, that's my idea. That's my stock. Because once it gets into that, sometimes we can tripwire the ego into like all of a sudden the ego goes into survival mode. So teamwork, the back and forth that we like to do in rounds of research, all of a sudden at the end, no one really knows who quote unquote owned it because really the whole team owned it. These Adrenaline can that- creep up in a couple of different ways here in investment process. One is with um, getting something in a portfolio. And so like you were saying, Pip, owning it, but also that adrenaline of crossing that threshold um, and all the things that may represent on, in different companies and teams. But the other one is trading. So um, we've talked about having a cooling off period before trading. And Pip, there were a few things that we did. Uh, for example, like, can you say more about some of the, the specific cooling off periods that would happen? And also some of the uh, almost like automatic um, triggers that would happen. Like, for example, if a short was taken out or something like that. Talk about that with um, in the spirit of undermining adrenaline. Sure. Um, the last thing you want is, is like emotion when you're making a, a big decision. So we actually want no decision to be very big at all. That's why we'd have series of rounds back and forth, et cetera. So by the time you get to it, just kind of the decision falls out as opposed to having a lot of adrenaline attach, attached with it. Um, in the cooling off period, if, hey, if you have an awesome idea and you came to a decision on XYZ and you're all pumped and your team's all that, what's the harm in letting it sit for three days? Um, the math around investors making money off of timing of trades is so ridiculously low. Yet, how many meetings have all of us been in as investors, not traders? And my background is as a trader, so I know that trading world. But as investors, how often do we think, oh, we got to put this trade in today? And sometimes just the cooling off period of our own emotions to then come back to it three days later and look at it. I get lots of ideas that with a little bit of cooling off, Brent, as you, as you know, you've observed, like three days later, the idea just doesn't look as good. Mm-hmm. So why not have that cooling off period? That, that three-day process in trading around um, disappointments in the market, most investors know that. Like, 
I'm going to wait three days. The market will cool off. It'll stabilize. I'm not going to be able to get out of this keyhole with my million shares of stock anyway. So why am I rushing? Like having that same principle of cooling off. Because if it's a good idea on a Tuesday, it ought to be a good idea on a Friday still. And what's the harm? Uh, a couple of other things that we can do in terms of cooling off is only trading once a week. Like, do we really want in the back of our mind a little buzzer going, like, I could put a trade in, I could put a trade in, I could put a trade in, I could put it. I don't think so, not as investors. So limiting it's just, oh, we'll only trade once a week. That means if you're excited on Tuesday, you better still be excited on Friday. Another thing we can do is have minimum trade sizes. So what, if your minimum trade size is, I don't know, 30 basis points or 40 basis points, if you amp it up to 80 basis points, and then someone looks you in the eye and says, do you want to amp up that trade by 80 base? All of a sudden, the emotions get checked by some other thought. It's kind of like when you really think your team's winning, going to win the game. And someone says, oh, would you like to bet your house on it? Or would you like to bet $500 on it? All of a sudden, you realize you're a fan, which there's no harm in, but you're not a business person making a bet on the Buckeyes winning or such. It so helps to understand methods. that we're um, actively biased towards action. We want to take action. It feels good. We know that there's a little dopamine hit um, when we take some sort of action. And there are times when we may want to undermine that. Yeah, I still, Britt, I, I think about um, one of the rules that we put in place was ever, whenever we had underperformance in the portfolio for a month, we would, we, that energy has to go someplace. And our rule was there was no trading, but would do a three hour offsite on process to identify a couple changes that actually couldn't have anything to do with the thinking we're solving the near problem, hmm. but it was just a space to take energy and put it somewhere because it does need an outlet. Absolutely. There are lots of things you can do to continue to alter the environment to avoid some of these kind of like hairline triggers. Um, one that comes to mind is really looking at the environment and seeing where you're letting in um, people, sources, um, suppliers who really just want to get your attention. Um, even ticker symbols. I remember when I first started to work at Coburn Ventures, it was foreboding to watch CNBC, which was in my face at my former investment bank all the time, things like that. Um, but really changing the environment to understand what your inputs are, um, almost going blank slate and then saying, okay, what do I want to allow in? Um, there's a term that I like to use called headline osmosis. When we start to believe we know something just because we were imprinted with a headline unwittingly throughout our day. And to start to understand what is the water we're swimming in and what are all the influences that we're letting in. I really like that uh, term you crafted. Um, and I think, and I was just rereading the report from 2012. And uh, one of the things you said is, like you're, you're in an airport and you're, you know, there's TVs everywhere now. Mm. And you just kind of look up and you see this headline ticker go across that says some thing that is meant to get your attention. It's not like uh, 
this is a message from God about your next investment. It's just like this ticker that goes, and all of a sudden you start to think that that has like some value subconsciously. And so you go around thinking, oh yeah, like I know what's going on because you saw this little hot breaking news flash from CNN. As humans and as investors, I think we're all actually pretty good at this game of connecting dots and putting puzzle pieces in place. It, the trap is when we're doing that with very superficial information or even misleading information. This goes to one of my favorite um, comments or quotes from Dr. Jerome Groupman's book, um, How Doctors Think. And he's quoting Dr. James Locke, who's a cardiologist, and he says, I keep an ongoing tap on how I know what I know. So it's almost like if you can think of tracing, a contact tracing system for your information, right? That's what, I love that quote. And I, so I'll give you another one from Arthur Schopenhauer. He said, the task is not so much to see what no one has seen yet, but to think what nobody yet has thought about that which everybody sees. In other words, how do you see something that's not there and we, that, that's not there for others? And if your inputs are the same inputs as everyone else all day long, you go to the same analyst meetings, you read the same things, et cetera, et cetera, and your environment is loaded with particularly distracting short-term orientated blips into your day, like mm. it gets really hard to see much of anything. So that environment of how do we protect our environment around us? Uh, what seeds do we water? What seeds do we, you know, let die? As we mentioned, we do have a piece with a lot more information on a number of biases and different tactics and suggestions to work with them. And I hope this offered a great starting point. Thanks for listening. <laughs>